What's going on, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Dunn. On the line today, I have a member of one of the 90s most underrated groups, Mr. Mark Gay, formerly of Shy. Now, if you guys remember last week, I interviewed Garfield from Shy. And Shy is just one of those groups that if I can talk to all the members, now I'm going to talk to all the members because these brothers have a very interesting story, and they were vastly, vastly underrated. And like I said, my interview last week with Garfield, they are much more talented than if I ever fall in love. There's other songs, other tracks, and other albums that these brothers put their stamp on that are still classics to me. Welcome to the line, Mr. Mark Gay. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, hey. I'm I'm good, Derek. I'm I'm really uh honored and blessed that you wanted to take the time to talk to me today and uh and go over some things that uh haven't really thought about uh, in a long time. So it's kinda interesting that when you when you hit me up, I really had to go back and write some notes and just kinda figure out how I want to say some things, what what things I want to talk about and, and just put it all together. It's a, it's a lot of memories from over the years. And, uh, I mean, you're involved oh, yeah. with the music industry. It just, it, it just kind of, it just kind of flows together. Oh yeah, man. Well, you know, man, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm an eighties baby, but I grew up in the nineties though. So, you know, this stuff <laughs> to me is, um, it's all gold and it's all history and musical, um, musical knowledge. Like I was telling, um, Garfield, yeah. you know, hearing, hearing you guys talk, to me, is the equivalent for sports fans talking about the Jordan doc because it's just, oh, you know, man. There's, so, yeah. there's so much knowledge and there's so much history and there's so much that we don't know about Shy that you guys never really got yeah. to just do, in my opinion, from the industry, and you guys were immensely, immensely talented. I mean, four lead singers, you could write, produce, <laughs> choreography. So, you know, we're going to yeah. get into all that. But, you know, I'm a shy fan. Like I said, I know you guys are much bigger than If I Ever Fall In Love. That was just the song to put you guys out there. You know, there's songs in your catalog that are better than that one. But we're going to get into all yeah. of that. So. I, I don't know about if it's better than that. I, I just think that's the song that is the perfect setup for everything that we wanted to uh, start out with at the time. And, um it's the song that is uh, always going to be special in our hearts because it introduced the world to a sound that was similar but different. It allowed us to showcase our harmonies. It allowed us to showcase our vocals. And uh, it, 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 was, it was just one of those things that everything fell together and it, it, it was a rocket ride. And, and when, when you get shot to the moon, there's nothing you can do about it. You just got to go for the ride and just keep going as far as you can. And that's kind of what we did with it at the time. All right. Well, like I said, I'm looking forward to hearing your testimony, looking forward to hearing your um, story and, you know, going on this time trip back down memory lane to see what you remember. So first thing is up. Growing up, who were some of your early musical influences Oh man, um, you know, growing up, um, my father had an eight-track player, so I think one of the first things I remember were these classics and Johnny Mathis and all these uh, 
uh, Curtis Mayfield and all these things in the car. Um, my dad always had like either a Cadillac or a Buick Riviera. And I just remember those trips that he used to go on. And uh, one of those trips, we would go to Atlanta to go see my uncle, uh, my mom's brother, Uncle Robert. And uh, he would always play Earth, Wind, and Fire and Isley Brothers. And, man, I, I just remember those songs. That's the Way of the World was one of the things that just dropped in my world. And I, I was spinning around. So I couldn't believe it was a song that I could, like, hear like that over and over and over again. And um, those were the early influences for the 70s, I would say. And then when the 80s rolled around, I mean, it was disco, late 70s disco. Uh, Prince and Rick James got going in the early 80s. And, uh, you know, by that time, I was just like, what in the world is going on? Music is just, it's way too much. It was so musically influential, but the melodies were there, the deal, Babyface. Who knew who Babyface was going to be at that point? being in the deal, but those, those songs were so classic from the, from the early 80s that all of that, all of that time had a, a distinct um, influence on my musical background. Um, so I would say most of, those, most of those groups right there were pretty much the foundation for how I heard harmony and stuff like that. Um, you know, growing up in the church as well, I was able to hear a lot of gospel backgrounds because I was actually in the youth choir. Um, my grandfather was a pastor. Actually, both of my grandfathers were pastors. So a lot of times I would spend Sundays and, and the rest of the week in the church. Um, Tuesdays, we had youth choir practice. So my uncle actually was the director and musician for the choir. So along the way, I got the bright idea to start playing piano. So I was a late bloomer. I didn't really play piano until I was about 12. And I didn't have a piano at my house. I had to go to the church to play in the church to learn under him. But at the same time, my grandparents also had a house across the street from the church. So I would get my lessons from my uncle every Tuesday um, at the house. So I picked up from him. He gave me all the foundations, the basics on how to learn, how he, however he was taught, he taught me the same way. And uh, that established a great, um, a great foundation for learning how to play an instrument um, from that point of view. So I, I really thank my uncle for you know, taking the time. He didn't have to. You know, it was, it was a big thing. He didn't have to do that. This was extra time. And he would take that every Tuesday to spend another hour, hour and a half with me. And uh, I never really took that for granted. And so many years later, 38 years later, I'm still playing piano and doing different things. And I'm able to help other people learn how to do different things, too. So, but if, it does, if it's not for one person or two people to kind of lay that foundation for you, you don't, you don't the opportunity to play or you don't get the opportunity to play during the church service or you don't get the opportunity to learn how to perform under pressure. And those are all things that are going to lay foundation for, you know, things that will come up later in my life. So uh, I just really go back and really look at that foundation. It's just like, wow, that really happened. He really took the time to do that. And what I was able to turn that into was, was a blessing. So I really take that into account. How did you end up linking up 
with Carl and Darnell to form Shy. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. So, it, you know, we usually end up telling the the short version of the story, which ends up being that Carl took the song to the softball field to meet up with Paco Lopez. Um, but let me let me go back a little bit because there was one thing while I was at Howard that I always wanted to do, and I always wanted to be part of the Homecoming Talent Show. So I tried out, I think it was 1990, I tried out for the talent show, and I got turned down. And uh, as a solo artist, you know, you go back and you work and you, you, you rethink your strategy a little bit. So the next year, I went back, and uh, I told the young lady, her name is Rayshawn Harris, I told her that I wanted to present a group to her. And for the audition, I actually brought in Darnell with me. And we, we actually did a, a short version of Together Forever. I already written that song by that time. So we went back to the audition, and she kept looking at me after we did the audition. She's like, okay, Mark, I know that you want to sing, but you have to bring a group. You have, you're telling me there's a group. You have to bring a group. So after that, I was like, well, Carl and Darnell are members of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, Beta Chapter, like myself. I, I got in one year before them, but once they got in the uh, chapter, they formed a, a duo called Beta. And so they were actually doing demos and singing around campus. And I lived in the same building, uh, which was right across the street from Howard off of Georgia Avenue in Fairmont. Um, I lived in the same building with Darnell. So I would hear them producing the records and kind of listening to their tunes. And I think one of the tunes was Ever, Ever, Since, you, Ever Since You're Gone, I Still Feel You. And I, I could tell that they had a lot of things that they were, you know, working in their favor. So I pulled them in to do the group. There was another fraternity brother, Kevin Monroe. There was another engineering major, Kevin Bryan, who I used to sing with a university choir on campus. So we actually formed the first group, which was called Spirit, that we actually performed at the Homecoming Talent Show. And we were sitting in the audience, and nobody knew who we were. We were coming up out of the crowd, and we ended up doing Boys to Men. And we started out doing the... And we did that, and then we turned that into Please Don't Go Away From Me. And uh, from the reaction, you know, Howard crowds are really uh, <laughs> brutal. And if you're not good, they're going to boo. But I think when we first started, there might have been a few boos, but it turned into cheers because they couldn't believe that we were actually trying to sing these songs. And um, by the time we finished that, we knew we had something, but we weren't sure in what direction it was going to go. So we ended up making a promise to practice almost every day after that. And then uh, I think Kevin decided along the way to do something else because, you know, he's an engineering major, so his time wasn't really going to make sense. And Kevin broke off doing something else. He's actually a movie mogul now. So, you know, eventually everybody kind of went their path to where they're going to go. So Darnell's roommate from freshman year, we all came in together, uh, Darnell, Garfield, and myself, we came in fall 1987. So Darnell's roommate was Garfield. So at that point, when the group was uh, kind of molding into what it would become, that's when Garfield entered the picture and we started practicing every day, like 
that fall into the spring semester, going on trips and forming, that will, will become shy. And one of the first songs that we actually recorded was If I Ever Fall in Love, along with two other songs um, that never never came out, but we were actually recording at studios in the D.C. area. And um, from then on, we just kind of never looked bad. We were singing If I Ever Fall in Love everywhere, acapella, on campus. We were singing it at Mr. Henry's, um, which was in Adams Morgan. Anywhere, every place we could sing the song and perform in front of people, we were doing it. So the people that knew us knew that we were actually, like, doing this thing, but nobody could tell anybody that we were going to go where we went um, as far as where the song would take us. So um, that, that's pretty much how we were able to, to form the group. It was all because of a talent show, all because of the idea to form a talent show, which molded into the group formation which molded into the urgency to make sure that we were going to get a deal. Now, mind you, all this time, I was graduating or about to graduate from Howard. So I'm studying, like, on the weekends and doing certain things. I'm a science major, so I have science stuff to deal with. So if I couldn't practice, so I had to do studying after we practiced. My time was spent on making sure that I would get a degree so my mama wouldn't whip my butt to make sure that she wasn't wasting her money for college. She knew nothing about the formation of a group. She knew nothing about any of the group until spring break of that spring semester because everybody decided they wanted to go to Miami. About 20 of us drove down to Miami to uh, go hang out, you know, last semester before, you know, most of us graduated and that kind of thing. And so one of my, one of my frat brothers actually told my mom about the group. Now, mind you, I hadn't told her anything. She calls me back in the room. She's like, Mark, I hear um, there's a group that you form. I just want to make sure that you're um, going to finish school. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to finish, Mom. We're going to lay it out. And, yep, that degree will be had May 9th, 1992. Oh, yeah, we're going to finish it up. But at that point, my friend kind of put me on the spot because she knew nothing about this group formation. Now, the other part to this story is my dad and his brother had formed a group at Tuskegee, and they were called the Collegian. And they actually, I, I knew nothing really about this at the time, but as the story will come out later on, that my mom had a previous history about dealing with somebody that she knew or was in love with being in a group. So her concern was, okay, you focus on this group, but how is that going to lay out for everything else that you want to do for the rest of your life and how is it going to relate to your degree and all that kind of stuff. And I always had to kind of remind her, relax, relax. I know what you're talking about, but, you know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, the group, if, if, when, it, when it happens, it will be successful. And, you know, don't worry, we're going to make sure that all the education is going to be all right. So it, it was a lot of layers to what was going on in my life at the time. But at the end of the day, I had to make sure that the graduation was going to happen. I had to make sure the group was going to work if we were going to do that. If not, I had to come up with a backup plan, which I did because I actually had gotten accepted um, for grad school um, for the School of Education at Howard just in case anything fell through the cracks with the group. But, of course, I wanted the group to succeed because it was everything, momentum was working in our favor. 
everything we would do. I mean, we went to New York to audition for all the record companies in New York. We got turned down flatly. We were singing the same song that was on the radio. We were singing in the studios. We were singing in front of people on the streets of New York. And, yeah, nothing. (laughs) So going through all of that just tells you you have to keep pressing hard. If you know what type of material you have, the confidence that you have, if you have that, you just keep pressing forward. And, man, let me tell you, Carl Martin, that guy right there, he has a relentless form of getting in your face and making sure that whatever he desires that he's going to do, he's going to get it done. And I admire that about him because if we don't have that, I don't think we get signed to the label that we get signed to um, because he was actually doing remixes um, for Gasoline Alley MCA. So because he was already talking to um, the A&R at, I guess, Alley James Elliott, he already had one foot in the door as far as being a producer and remixer for some of their projects already. So it kind of happened that we kind of crossed that bridge once we hit the, uh, once we, once we, he got the song to Paco Lopez, who was at WPGC on the radio, he was able to kind of talk to James Elliott and say, okay, we got the song on the radio. So is there any way that your company might want to sign us? You're, you know, you're independent. Um, can we think about restructuring? This was all Carl maneuvering the situation behind the scenes. Most people never knew that part, but that's just kind of how Carl does. And he was a great businessman. And still to this day, he, he, he's just doing things and you won't know exactly what he's doing, but he, he's always, got one foot in something. So because of that, we were able to kind of move forward and pull forward the way we needed to at the time. Um, so that that's pretty much how we all linked up and how we uh, formed the group. And and that's how Garfield entered the mix. And, and from there, we just saw a lot of practice, a lot of practice. <laughs> so before Garfield joined the group, did you all ever consider another member or being a, um, a trio, or did you guys all going to be a quartet? No, we kind of knew we needed to be a quartet because um, Garfield's voice fit the bill as far as being the bass. Like, Boys and Men had the bass, but, and the bass voice at the time. And uh, we knew we needed that. Um, all of our voices are really, really similar as far as our tenors, and, and that allows us to kind of interchange a lot. Uh, where we could play different parts and, and do similar parts. But Garfield, he had a lower register, so that, that allowed us to uh, have more flexibility for different things we wanted to do and to showcase. So at that point, once we heard his voice, we kind of knew. And then he had a lead sing style anyway. So at that point, it's like you put it all together. It's a no-brainer. It, it didn't make any sense to even try to pull in other people at that point. We, we knew what we had. So you went to Howard University. I'm based in the D.C. area. So I got to ask, with you coming from Miami, what was your reaction to go-go music in comparison to Miami-based style music? Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, I think for me, uh, the rhythms of the Miami music that we had, in addition to the bass, I was already – used to a certain uh, lot, lot of rhythms, the Latin rhythms in Miami. 
Um, but once I went to DC and heard the go-go rhythms, uh, I mean, you matched it up. It was, it's a different sound than, than I ever heard before. And because we got there in 87, go-go clubs were still open. So you could still go to the clubs. They might've been dangerous at the time because DC was really chaotic when we got there. But the rhythms that you heard on the street, the, the rhythms that you, you heard and you just, the drums, it was all about the movement. And, and then on top of that, that year, Spike Lee, um, feature EU doing the butt in, in school days. So you, you match all that. It's our first year of college. You, you have go-go scene just popping off, doing all of, all of the rhythms on the street. And then it gets more popularized by a movie. I mean, at that point, you're just in trance and you're learning different rhythms. I was already l- learning different hip-hop rhythms because coming from the South and going to the Northeast, I mean, the New York influence, you could tell when your friends are coming from New York and they play all the hip hop that's underground for whatever's coming from that, that area, you put all that together. You have the New York influence, the DC influence, the Miami base, which never left me because I was bringing the two live and whatever coming from our area. And people thought we were crazy because they're like, that'll never work. And okay, whatever. I enjoy it. So I'm going to listen to it. And there are like 20 of us on campus that played our music all the time. So, I, I I just became uh, entrenched with loving music in general and and having the record companies like The Wiz uh, just play music on the street. And then it, it just made it work. My son just walked in, so he, he was trying to barge in the interview. <laughs> What's up, ma'am? Hi. This is Wesley. You going to say hi? Hi. <laughs> So I'm doing the interview right now, so you got to go, okay? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know later, okay? Go see mommy. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Happens all the time. It's, it's just part of the life of being a dad, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. All right, so the group's first hit, a signature song was If I Ever Fall In Love. Mm-hmm. When Carl Martin wrote song did you have any idea the song will become as iconic as it did honestly yes because every time we would sing it i mean people reacted to it uh certain songs don't garner that type of reaction but singing a cappella and just hearing that sound and and singing the rhythms to it over and over and over you already knew before it even hit the radio that it, it was going to reach an audience now, did we know it was going to reach globally like it has? Maybe not that much. You just knew in the States it, it could work. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that song had everything. It had all the rhythms. It had the it had the catchphrase. It had the melodies. It had the rhythms. Um, the way we sang it, I mean, you, you hear groups try to do it over and over, and some have gotten really close, but because our voices are just so similar, it's hard to really, it's hard to really imitate the exact sound of how we layer our voices. Um, so I, I think all of that comes together, and and how it played out. And um, and the fact is, when it first came out, nobody knew what we really looked like because there were no pictures. There was just a cover, and it was like a green, yellow, red, black cover, and it just got thrown out there, and and people just they couldn't put an image 
with the song. So it forced them to listen to the song before they even knew what it was going to look like. So in retrospect, that kind of worked because people just listened to the song and judged it for what it was as opposed to, oh, they're, they're guys who went to Howard and did this, all of that. All the information came afterwards, so that kind of played in our favor as well. But, uh, yeah, that, that song, no, no. You, you knew what it was from the first time you heard it. And then when we got the chance to do the, the music version and, and do uh, the remix for that, I mean, that just took it to a whole new level where you knew the urban audience was going to either like it even more or they just like both versions or they pick one or the other. I mean, we always had requests for doing the music version or doing the acapella version. And there was an argument between the two at one point, you know, which one you want to do. And that song is just very, very special. And they're, they're, it's, hard to, it's hard to get a song like that on that level. But I think the hardest part is coming up with a follow-up song coming after that and you can't match it but you just have to get as close as possible to doing what that song does and and that's really hard to do and and that adds a lot of pressure to to uh to what you're going to do musically for the rest of your career and i think that was one of the things that we kind of were chasing our tail after that because everybody wanted to do the song like if I ever fall in love and you just can't do it the same way two times. It's hard to do. So you just kind of have to keep doing music and, and grinding and, and, and write songs that are meaningful and don't, don't match up your songs. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. And eventually you might have another hit that's a little different than that one. And uh, yeah, if I haven't just put it everywhere we want it to go, that's, that's the song that set up everything. You have a solo writing credit on the first album for the timeless wedding song, Together Forever. What was the inspiration behind that song? Um, Together Forever was a song that I written in high school. And uh, one of the first songs I ever written, I've been writing stuff uh, pretty much since I was about 15 and I probably wrote that maybe my junior year. And that was, a, that was, that was my audition go-to. And every time there was an audition for a talent show in high school and beyond, I would always use that song. And it was just one of those pieces that if you, if you wanted to be in love and you wanted to be together, you want to be together forever. And that was the inspiration behind it. I never thought about it as a wedding tune. But even to this day, I actually still perform doing Together Forever at weddings because people request it. Um, so having people enjoy it for this amount of time over the years, this is really, really special to me. And knowing that I did it before the group wasn't even formed or thought about just makes it a, a true treasure to even present that to the public and have the public enjoy it for so long and the funny part about recording the song, I think Carl was gone. His uh, his uncle had passed away while we were recording the album, so he was gone. So we you know, we asked the uh, record label if we could do some more songs while he was gone. And uh, Together Forever ended up being one of the songs that we recorded. Now, um, I've actually played the acoustic piano on the song, and the thing that people don't maybe not understand that when you're playing uh, a track, that's one thing you can go back and forth and do certain things. 
But the way I presented the recording is I did it in two takes. In the first take, I think something was wrong with the section that I played. So I said, okay, let me play it one more time. So when you hear the actual foundation of the song on the album, it was the second take that I had ever done played in the studio. And I played it all the way down because as a musician, you have to remember exactly how your song is going to lay out and play with the feeling that it's going to get your singers to be on top of the music for every section that, that, that it plays for. So that song is done in, in one take, the second take, and there, all the other singing is laid on top. So I think we did, what was that? I think we did the uh, chorus after that together forever. So Carl was gone the whole time, so when he came back, he was like, oh, my God, you, you guys did this? So we added his part for the hook once he got back, and we had done the, uh, the verses and everything. And then by the time it was finished, it, it was just, uh, it was just, a, it, it, was, it was gold. It was a masterpiece. And it wasn't really planned, but we just kind of made sure that it was involved to complete the album process because I'm not sure if that album's the same if it doesn't have that song on it. It would be good but can it be better and that's why i kind of wanted to put it on there and we have performed it at campus a little bit it wasn't finished at campus but we we decided to do more to it once we got to california um so for us to be able to do that and put an album credit together now mind you when we got to california these are like maybe the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth times I ever been in the studio period to perform a record. So at that point it's kinda of like I was still learning how to be in the studio, how to sing in the studio, how to record with the headphones on and everything was so raw at that point. So I was loving every second of being in the studio, learning what the engineers were doing, the levels learning arrangements, vocals, all of that stuff. I was just a sponge because I love music that much, and I still do to this day. But for us to be in a studio at that point in time and do music like that, it was just, it was just a dream, and I didn't want it to stop ever. Like, that, that was our soul. Let, let's do this. Every day was Christmas. We got a song on the radio. I love hearing my songs on the radio. And that feeling, you know what that feels like, but now we're doing songs and maybe they can get a, a different feeling for your personality or things, how you want to get across when you do music and you know, different textures. And then that texture actually went into our live show as well, where we have a portion of a show where I actually got to play live and Darnell was singing on stage as well. It was just the two of us not be playing. He was singing that part, and then we do a switcheroo where our musician, Raymond Angry, would take over. And then from that point, I would sing my second verse, and then the band would come in. And that's what you hear on the Right Back At You, Together Forever live version. You'll hear that, how it changed from the, the first album to the remix album, how everything came alive for the live performance. So when you hear a song that goes from your high school and you've written it and then you hear it developed and then you hear a live version years later, you're like, wow, this is what music is all about. And then you get the letters where people are like, oh, I'm so touched and my, my wife and I got married on your song and, and we're just writing you because 
we used to song for our wedding, and these are things that people don't talk about, but these are things that actually happen to songwriters and musicians over the years, and these are things that you save the letters over the years, and you're like, oh, my God, like, this is really affecting people. It's really making a, a difference in people's lives, and I think as a, as a songwriter, that's what you do it for. You do it just to kind of make somebody's day get a little brighter, there's, there's a lot of tough times going on, so can a song change your, your mood? Or can it change how you your viewpoint on some things? Can it you know, can it can you go outside of yourself and think about it from a different point of view as well? So I, I think that's what songwriting means to me. And uh, um, I'm very, very grateful that we were able to put that element on our album, our first album. Oh yeah, definitely um wedding song I mean Right before I got married, I had made a CD of um, just songs throughout my life as a single man, and then, you know, you meet the right person. I had a mix CD that I kept on repeat prior to me getting married just to have me in that, you know, wedding mindset, and, you know, Together Forever was on that CD. Oh, wow. Speaking of Together Forever, it's 1992, you guys are signed. Hypothetically, if both Ralph Tresvant and Boyce Men approach you after for the song for the new album and they offer you the same amount of money for the song, who would you sell the song uh, to? Oh my God, do I have to make a choice? Well, I mean, you could say I keep it for myself, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say if I didn't have to make the choice, I would have said Luther Vandross. Just because we met Luther and he was one of the idols that we uh, were singing around. And uh, we met Luther at the um, 1993 inauguration. So for him to sing that song, I think he would have done it justice um, beyond belief. But uh, if I had to make a choice between the two, um, Boyce and Man definitely would have killed it. And Sean and Wanye, I mean, their voices on top of that, Nate. And, uh, oh, man, they, they would have killed it. They would have killed it too, no problem. Yeah, yeah, they they would have killed it. <laughs> During the promo tour for the first album, what mm-hmm. was your favorite country to visit? Oh, I'm I'm gonna go with a continent. I had never been to Australia before, and uh, it was one of those things. I think we had done something in Miami, so everybody's eating at at my mom's house in Miami. And we have to fly from Miami to Atlanta, Atlanta to L.A., L.A. to Honolulu, then Honolulu to Australia. And we're just beat up. We've been doing all this stuff. We've been in Europe most of the, uh, most of the fall. And this was like January 1993. And uh, they asked us to go to Australia. We had never been there. We didn't know what to expect. Everybody's complaining. We're trying to figure it out. The minute we land, it's like this golden paradise, like nothing you've ever seen before. We saw the opera house. You see just everything bright, bright sunny skies, no pollution, Bondi Beach. They took care of us. I mean, our rep, he went over the moon and back to just make us feel at home. And once you see a place like that, you're like, okay, I need to keep traveling the world because... There, there's a lot out there that I haven't seen, and this, this, this is pretty good. This is pretty good stuff. And I get to celebrate with my boys, and we're going around the world and seeing things. And you don't think about, like, the promo 
of your song being in Sydney, Australia, and going to a Virgin music store and having people mob you or want to mob you because you're from the States and your song is what they like. I think that was like the furthest thing from our minds coming from the States, and we just didn't know. We didn't know our music was translating like that, but we learned real quick because we had to get, you know, whisked out the back door and, and I mean, this happened over and over. When you're in the mall and it's a really scary thing, you, they shut that uh, guard door and they got to get you through the building, or certain through, through the security elements. And it, it could be a very scary thing when you're at that level. Um, but yeah, Sydney, Australia, Melbourne, yeah, we, we have fun over there. We have fun over there. We never really got a chance to do um, a big tour like we wanted to, but that that let us know that if we made it back, it could be really good. So, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Australia a lot. Around 1993, the group shot the video for Baby I'm Yours on Howard's campus. Did you have any idea that you, your love interest would later become your future wife? Uh, no. <laughs> I had no clue, no clue whatsoever. And actually, we were we were both dating different people at the time. And uh, I think I was just excited more so at the time just to film on campus where we had created this, this, you know, this, this music that we wanted to give the world. And the whole idea was to go back to Howard and just kind of showcase the campus and let people know what Howard stood for and how it helped us build our careers, our manhood, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, no, I had no idea. In fact, I didn't even know that she was in California. Um, but actually, the drummer on the on our tour, Gordon Campbell, told me that she went to his church. So that's kind of how we reconnected years later down the road. I think she had moved out here in 90, 1998. But we didn't see each other until, I think, 2003, something like that. And uh, we we met on a whim going to see Michelle and Diego Cello. And then that was the first time I had seen her uh, for, I think, that's about 1995. I didn't see her uh, again from, from 1995 until about 2003. Then after that time, you know, we just started kind of hanging out. Because at that point, she had been married. And uh, she had a daughter that was born in 2000. So my, my daughter now, who goes to Howard, actually, uh, currently <laughs> is 20 years old and uh, her name is Naila and uh, yeah that's kind of I met her after that time and um, been raising her and kind of getting her into music and she does a lot of art too so she's a visual art you know, fan as well so she has her own business and does different kind of things so, so my wife currently that's where it went after we, we met in LA years later but at the time we did the video I had no idea um, that that was going to happen. Um, I'm very thankful that it did because my life is definitely the way I want it to be at this point. Um, and just just blessings all around for that whole situation. But the funny part about that story is uh, I think somebody had let her know to put in a picture um, to be part of the shoot. And so when we go to pick the young ladies, um, the, the group actually picked all the young ladies for the video. And uh, she never knew that until I told her years later. 
So the reason I picked her is because she submitted a picture of a Polaroid that morning. It was a black and white Polaroid. And the, the production company was like, you sure you don't have any other pictures? You sure you want to submit that picture? But if it wasn't for that Polaroid, I wouldn't have to pick the picture that she presented because that's what made it stand out from my eyes. And once it stood out, I was like, no. And they were like, are you sure that's the picture? I said, yeah, yeah I'm sure. That's, that's the person right there. And so we had never met until we got on the shoot and everything. And we just we just got along. Um, it wasn't a problem. And, you know, she's an actor as well. So she, she's ready to just do it, be on camera, look good, and she was ready to go. But, uh, yeah, I had no idea. But looking back on all the little instances that happened along the way, yeah, yeah, you could tell we were, we were probably meant to be together. I mean, she just, she knows everything about me from the back of my hand and she knows my feelings and how I deal with stuff. And she's very understanding, compassionate. And uh, yeah, she's a great mom to our kids. So yeah, everything has worked out very fine. <laughs> Prior to the second album, you all recorded The Place Where You Belong, the lead singer mm-hmm. for the Beverly Hills Cop 3 track. Did you guys get a chance to meet Eddie Murphy? We did meet Eddie later on. We met him at the premiere, and uh, that's after he heard the song, and he met up with us, and he was like, great song, I love, love the track. It was kind of, Eddie was a gentleman. I mean, this guy, you know, he's done... Man, um, I'm like one of the biggest Eddie Murphy fans, movies, uh, stand-up, all of that. So to actually meet him in person and see that he's actually that guy and, and puts his own crews together and make sure that he covers uh, black staffing and management and all that kind of stuff was really important to see. Um, but we were fortunate enough actually to meet with John Landis. And before the song was created, John Landis actually showed us material from the movie. And from the movie, we were able to actually kind of write the song and, uh, and put it together. And um, I'm pretty sure uh, Carl and Trey, Trey Lorenz, who sang um, on, on the song with uh, Mariah Carey at the time, um, Carl and Trey had a good friendship. So they actually worked together on part of the song and a lot of the melodies come from Trey. Um, so that's the workings of the song. Carl pretty much worked on the track and everything else. The middle of the part, uh, where it says, you belong in my... I think I created that part just trying to put something to, that makes sense to give the, uh, the song a little different edge in the middle. Um, very special song, though, because it was the marking of our transition to go from the first album and the remix album to go into a new, a new phase of music, the place where you belong was the perfect song to mesh that. It wasn't exactly a ballad, but it wasn't exactly up-tempo, but it had a funk beat to it. It was effective, addictive, infectious. It just made you really like that song. And you know, playing that over and over, it's like one of those things where you, you know, you're not trying to do if I ever, but you're trying to do a song that people really like. And with it being in the movie soundtrack as well, the video came out, they pushed it, and we had a, a great director for that as well. Um, so for that to be pushed, it, it helped us in our maturation process of of doing new music. 
and, and getting that music out to an audience that otherwise might not have heard us before or seen us that way, but it allowed us to, to go that direction. So that, that was a very important song in, in the shy and discography um, as far as the direction that we were going to go. October 17th, 1995, the group releases its second album, Blackface. Vocally and from a production standpoint, I feel like it's, stronger, it's a stronger album than the first one. Do you feel the label dropped the ball from a promotion standpoint? Um, I wouldn't say dropped the ball. I just think there are a lot of factors that go into how a hit album is established in the market. And uh, MCA had gone through some changes in the urban black music division. And a lot of the people who were involved with the first project were not there for the second project. And um, we had to work with new people. And it was hard to get the mesh together, the timing together. Um, everybody wanted to push the project. But again, the, the roster at MCA was strong. You had Mary J. You had um, other groups who were coming out and doing their second project. So I just think a lot of the timing for what we were doing, uh, if we could go back, I, I think we, we would do the record maybe a little bit faster. But I think for us also, we were also dealing with the element of our public didn't see us as much as we thought they should. So we actually did the uh, Budweiser Superfest um, right before we were finishing the record. And so we did two legs of that where our fans could actually see us perform, which is probably as important to us in the state as opposed to not seeing us and then just putting out another record. So I, I just think the timing of everything and where the label was overall, where music was, because hip-hop was making a bigger, um, a bigger point of view and they were going into doing concerts hip-hop-wise. And it, it was definitely more prominent, becoming more prominent than R&B at the time. So it's kind of like, how are we going to fit into this market doing R&B music but still be shy like we were before. We were trying to make it mesh and work together. And, you know, it, it, you just put the album out and you just try to do what you can do and, and go as far as long as you can. The label did back us because we did this tremendous show for the, uh, the distribution center in, in Florida, and they put in so much money for that project. And we did show after show after show. So... I mean, I can't say they didn't do their part. I just think the timing of everything is just, it's just one of those things where you, you try to put all of it into it and maybe the song didn't push the way the first song pushed. Maybe it was a little different promotion push than it was just easier to push If I Ever Fall In Love and Come With Me at the time. And maybe there was a different song they wanted to push. And a lot of things come into play and you, you, you don't really know what that one thing is going to be. But you definitely want the, the backing of the company to be supportive towards a particular song. And I, I'm not sure if everybody agreed on what song it should be. Um, I'm pretty sure they even had a problem with the name Blackface for the album. So that was another issue that had to be discussed as well. 
And we were pretty adamant on not changing the name because our intent was basically like, okay, we're going to name this album Blackface because we want to dispel the notion that blackface should be a negative term. Blackface means that we are comfortable with ourselves and our skin. But it was so hard to tell other people over and over that that was our intent. And because we couldn't tell it in such a way, I think we would at such a young age, I think that was probably one of our failings as well. Because we had, we had to be the ones to convey that. And if we don't convey it, then the public's not going to buy into it too. So the music can be good, but your title must match what you're conveying. And I'm not sure if we made that clear. The artwork was great. They did their, everybody did their part. But if you don't convey, the music has to match what the title is. And if the title doesn't always make sense with everything you're doing, you're going to have some problems. And if everybody, if the whole company doesn't believe in your title, I don't know. Does everybody put their 100% effort? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I'm definitely not, um, I'm, I'm definitely proud of the album because the album that we put together was definitely unique from the first album. And you could tell we put in the time to work on the vocals, work on the production, work on little things that we didn't really have time to work on before. Um, and we, we were a group that we were pretty much in-house with our production. So everything went through the group, the acceptance, that kind of thing. Uh, at that, at that point, you just, you're pouring everything into this record and, and that's what we got out of it. From a single standpoint, I Don't Want to Be Alone is another beautiful ballad with a lush melody. What was the motivation for that one? Um, well, Carl wrote that one, so I can't really speak on the motivation behind it. But I know it's one of the songs that the company really loved um, pushing. And they actually got Soul Shock and Carlin, who were popular producers at the time, to do a remix. And they were the ones to actually do the, uh, the video version of the song. Um, so between that and Kevin Braid, um, directed the video and actually I think Kenya Moore is in that video too. Um, <laughs> come to think of it, she, uh, uh, was one of the interests that you happen to be in the shot. And, you know, we did the, uh, the video in Vegas and it was weird because the the video was actually like lush and the group was going through a tough time at that point because we were trying to understand um, where the album was at, why it wasn't getting the traction that we thought it should for being such a complete record. Um, and we were just trying to get that one song that maybe could turn the corner and turn it around. And we thought maybe that that song could be it. And it did get a lot of traction in certain places, but it just didn't get the, uh, the, uh, the pop record traction that the company wanted to get from it. So we were going through a lot of changes at that point, and people were kind of growing musically and wanting to do different things at that point as well. So I think it's one of those things when you've been around each other as a group for a long time and you're growing, you're 25, 26 years old, and uh, you're, you're just trying to figure it out. And musically, it just wasn't as easy as it was in the beginning. So I think 
that particular song, even though we love doing it, and it was a great live version too um, that we actually performed on stage, uh, but it, it just wasn't making everybody happy at that time. And we really were trying to figure that out, and it was really tough. Speaking on I Don't Want to Be Alone, a lot of people don't know that you all did a fire remix with a pre-reasonable doubt Jay-Z. Did you have any idea that Jay would become the star he is now after hearing his verse on the remix? Um, absolutely, with no doubt. We we knew that that was we we knew that was a classic. Even if it was just a New York classic, we we knew right away that 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 was going to be because we had heard uh you know what I got you know we heard all the stuff and we we're like wow he's on it. Is it going to be cool? Marley Marl did the, the production for the for the remix, so it it just had all the elements of this is going to work, and the DJs loved it. But for some reason, it just never came out like in the public eye. It's so weird. They just did it for the DJ pool, and we we're like, why are they doing it just for the DJ pool and not for normal consumption? We were just really trying to figure it out. I mean, it really worked. The DJs loved it, so we go to the clubs and they just rocking. Like, no problem. I mean, they're just playing the club. I don't want to be alone. I mean, just, it, it was a no-brainer. But we could not get it on the radio for some reason. And it would only be in late-night mixes and, and, and just DJ sets, but it would never be on a regular rotation in the in a normal radio. So, we were just, man, we were just trying to figure it out. That, that whole period was, was really strange, a little weird. Uh, we knew we had good music, but the, the links just weren't linking up. And, you know, I, I guess really we should have gone back into the pit and <laughs> just done some more just to keep it rolling. But, you know, everybody was on a different thing at that, at that point. So we were just trying, to, like, just trying to keep it going. It's almost like a no-brainer because, you know, 96, summer 96, like that's, that's right when Jay was, during to really come out. I mean, he 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 was known in hip hop oh, yeah. circles, <clears throat> indie wise, and for his remixes and everything. But yeah, if they would have dropped that like in summer '96, and like he oh. gave it gave it a oh, big oh. push. Oh, and that's the thing. All I needed was the push. Uh, that's that's all I needed. But again, the the companies are different, and a lot of uh, a lot of people who had the connections to make that that push the radio they weren't at the company anymore. So all the people who did all the setup for Comforter, who did all the setup for If I Ever Fall in Love Remix, and whoever did the setup for Baby I'm Yours to get it to MTV, all those connections were just kind of all over the map or it just wasn't there. So if you don't have people that know what to do to put it where, it's, it's just going to be a problem. And that, that was our problem. I mean, I, I love the people that still, they still know about it. They still you know, hear it and they, oh, man, I remember that. that Man, I was in the club. And, yeah, you get that. But it just never got that added, uh, where it could just be cherry on top. So can't get mad at it. You know, you did a song with Jay-Z, like, okay, yeah, we got it. <laughs> and and Marl is, man, he's phenomenal. Him working in the studio, watching him as a producer in the studio, I mean, that, that that's like, you know, bucket list stuff. Like, okay, I'll mark that off too because Marl does his thing. 
He does this. He's got his set. He got his case. He brings his case. He's serious. He does his thing, works it. And we got that song done, man, it must have been like a day and a half. It was fast. It didn't take long. He just he just worked it, you know, got it done. Boop, boop, boop. And we don't take long to work once we know our parts anyway, so it, it, it wasn't going to take long vocally. And, um, yeah, he out, outstanding, outstanding job by the, the company to pull that together. So there were a few people who, who knew what to do to put, put that together. They did an outstanding job of layering that and getting Marl to come to California and do that with us. That, that was a, a great, great part of the process. So 1999, the group releases the third album, Destiny, on an independent label. What were your thoughts on going from a major to an indie label? Um, well, because MCA didn't want uh, – Carla left the group at that time. So by that time, you know, the label wasn't really interested in a trio – they weren't interested in working with us at that point for whatever reason. Uh, so we thought, you know, going to an indie label, um, we went to Big Play Records, which was in Baltimore. Um, our fraternity brother, Michael Jackson, was the owner and founder of the label. So we thought it was a good position for us to do something, to feel free, to do music that we wanted to do, um, to do something outside the box, um, a lot of people were getting independent distribution at the time. Maybe we could work some angles from people we know, some contacts, and and kind of get into the business of music to, to do something new um, that we had never done before. And once we got there, it pretty much was that. And we were able to go to the studio, and, man, I think we recorded probably 60 songs. I mean, I took my gear from from L.A. to shipped it to Baltimore, and we were laying songs maybe two months, just laying songs out. The album ended up differently than, than what it was later, so they actually brought in some producers um, that they knew as well, and some of the songs got you know spliced and cut down, um, that kind of thing. But the whole process of doing it, it ended up being a solid project. Um, that, you know, musically, it, it just went in a totally different area. It was definitely, you could tell it was a, a late 90s sound that they were going for. Some of it was a little too much for me. I, I, I wanted to do more uh, more music that was classic R&B, but I understood what they were trying to get for the money that they were trying to put in. So I definitely understood that. And and it was uh, it was hard to do the record without Carl, because it was just different. That that element that he brought to the table, you know, helped with completion. So that was new to me. Um, but there was an individual that we brought into the project, his name is Eric Willis, that uh, kind of brought into the fourth member category, and he sang on some of those songs. And he would write with us and uh, work with us. We flew him out from California and sang on the record. So that kind of added the the fourth the fourth voice kind of sound at the time because it wasn't a full member at the time. So that project just it, it brought up a lot of curveballs, the songs, uh, you know, things whatever we wanted to think about. We, we could write. We had the freedom to do it. 
Um, musically, we had the freedom to do a lot. KRS One is on that record. Um, um, we had a oh man, I forget the trumpet. The trumpet did Dante. Ah, oh, I can't think of his name right now. I think Dante Winslow. He's a trumpet player, and he ended up playing, I, I believe, with Justin Timberlake on his tour when he got the horn section for that. And he's a phenomenal trumpet player. He was on Can't Stop the Rain. Um, so if you ever hear that, it is more of a monologue track that we did, and we sang a little bit around it. But he played the trumpet on it, and he blew the doors off. He's from Baltimore. Had a friend of uh, mine from college recommended him to me, so we, we brought him in to work on the project. And uh, we just were able to do things that we kind of weren't able to do before, and I enjoyed working with Mike. He He's passed away now, Mike. He, uh, he, he died from a motorcycle accident in Louisiana, so that's where he's from. So uh, I, I owe a lot for him to be able to put us in position to do that record to see he was actually still playing for the Ravens at the time when we moved out there. And so he was playing football and had the vision of, you know, of doing this label. And uh, he did Super Bowl parties. So we ended up going to Miami with them and, and doing the Super Bowl party and performing. And there, there are a lot of good things that came about from that project just, just, just doing that. And we we're able, actually able to, go on a tour and do a lot of the the P2s and P3 stations that we had never done before. So we were, we were actually going, <laughs> we were actually in a van pulling a U-Haul trailer that we were actually pulling my guitar because I started playing guitar in the late 90s and uh, playing guitar, my amp, all of that stuff. So we would play our set. We had a DJ. And so we were kind of altering our visual for the stage and, and playing totally different. And uh, and that was the first time we actually got to actually relax and go down south in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, and go to stations and touch people we had never touched before. So we got to, you know, when when you're doing it, If I Ever Fall in Love and you're going to the stations, only the top stations get all of your attention because you don't have time to go on every level. So we were actually able to go back during that time, during, during Destiny, to actually go to these stations and actually get to meet people, play basketball with them, hang out with them, do picnics, and, and just kind of lay low and, and actually get to meet a lot of the fans who actually couldn't get to our shows for the, the first project. And we couldn't do that until three projects in, which was kind of weird, but at the same time, that much more fulfilling because we got a chance to do it later. And uh, you you learn not to take things for granted on any level. And when you go, you're flying on planes and doing this and you're overlooking because you, coming from HBCU, you still want to have that connection with your society, your, under, your underground, the people that you went to school with. And touring is the best way to connect with your college buddies, with all the people that you grew up with. So the thing is, when you're in a group, their family, it becomes your family. Their friends become your friends. And there's a lot of overlap when you go to different towns. And, you know, if you look on our Facebook pages, you'll have a lot of people who are friends of Garfield, friends of Darnell, that are friends of mine because I've met them over the years and I've spent time with them. So that's 
just what it is and that's what it becomes and it's the beauty of being in a group and uh and having that success where you can share your success with other families and uh when they come to miami oh yeah go see my mom she's still down there you know her phone number that that it's easy because that's what it's supposed to be like and uh that's what destiny allowed us to do at that same time and um and actually after that eric allowed us to go to the next phase of our career because Mike, because the distribution didn't work as well as we wanted to for the for the Destiny record, Mike, um, he he really had a bad taste in his mouth for a little bit about that. So Eric actually negotiated us out of that deal and uh, got us into a situation <clears throat> with uh, Warner Brothers. So <laughs> years later. Paul Brown, who was an engineer for our first project and, you know, mixing songs, uh, ended up with, uh, he, he had been producing Boney James all these years. And so his relationship with Warner Brothers Jazz was just phenomenal. And so he had, he had done records with Kirk Whalum, Rick Braun, Boney James, um, I think Bob James and a couple of others. So all of a sudden, we were doing singles for Jazz Cat on their label because of this relationship that we had with an engineer that we previously met, you know, over time. So Destiny turned into Warner Brothers singles with Jazz, and uh, we did I Will Always Love You. And, of course, they had a good support system. So wherever you go into the airport and you hear jazz or you know, anything associated with Warner Brothers Jazz, you're going to hear all these songs that we were on. So because of that relationship that we had previously, that turned into the next chapter of where Shy was in our careers. And I Will Always Love You is one of those big records that we didn't write the song, but at the same time, I, you always felt like you wrote it because the vocals just blended right on it. And you just sang right on it and it just made sense. And it, Oh, man, one of the best easy projects that we probably ever had to do was I've Always Loved You with Bone Jane. Right. And, and you've seen them do a lot of um, songs with other R&B artists after that. But I think yeah. that was one of the catalysts because we were able to work with them and make that sound just sound so comfortable and easy. And Bone's a great, great musician, but an even better person. He's a genuine person who's just cool. It's cool. His ladies, it's cool. And everybody you meet around that campus is cool. So once we did that, it turned into some other stuff. And then we just had a whole bunch of Warner Brothers' dad singles that we laid out over time. So definitely, definitely an interesting phase to go from R&B to more of a contemporary jazz kind of layout. Um, but, but we were comfortable with that. I mean, you know, we, we like to vary our styles a lot. So. It, it, it was it was cool. To promote the 2004 album, back from the metric system, the group toured heavily overseas. Do you think that RB artists are appreciated more overseas than in the U.S.? Uh, definitely appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think. For American artists, I think we understand 
that music is global when you go overseas and you see people in the clubs and they're, they're just diving to the music. And we were actually able to perform a lot of the Back, Back from the Mystery System album over there to kind of test it out and just see what was going to work, what might not have worked, how we need to how we need to adjust. And Eric, by this time, Eric was a full member of the group um, at that point. So we were working with him, um, singing all the harmonies, making sure it was cool. Germany is such a cool vibe for us. Again, you're, you're going into a market where they loved you before, but now you're in person, you're doing the autographs, you're in faith. And the same people who were there when you met them as teenagers in 1993-ish, they're now older. It's about 2003 to 2005, and you meet some of the same people, and they remember you from when you first came out. It's, it's baffling, but at the same time, it's kind of like you're growing with your fans at the same time, and you kind of have to just get where they're at. And we met this guy, uh, Tobias Hurd, and uh, he became a promo guru over there, and he just took us around Germany, and we are driving around on the trains, and and dealing, we we learned Germany, we learned Amsterdam, we we did it all, and we we had a lot of fun, and we got to work out a lot of music, and uh, worked out the entire project. Even did songs over there um, that we wouldn't have done in the states at all, but we were able to just kind of record in the studios over there and do stuff and and write on the fly. I mean, they they're notorious for like, hey, we want to do this song and get it out there and do this. Can you help me on this? And we're like, yeah. And then a lot of times Eric would just kind of fly the tracks over, you know, over the internet and go back and forth. And we ended up, if you ever hear the song Ecstasy, we did that um, over there. But it ended up one of the producers is actually a guy in Sacramento. We haven't met him to this day. But he ended up being in Sacramento, so a lot of the tracks would fly in from him over to Germany, back and forth, and Eric would fly those tracks, and, you know, we made it work. Um, just by hook or crook, it just being exploratory um, during that era because people just love to see you show up. I think for Europe, I think it was more important for them to see you show up than not because a lot of advertisements, there would be like Shy's coming or this group is coming and they wouldn't show up. And they would just take the, the deposit and just deposit it in their bank account and not show up. So the promoters were like, I'm scared to book you because are you going to show up? And are you going to be willing to do seven dates in 10 days or whatever the amount was? Because we, we were trying to do double ups uh, on the weekends and two clubs here in Germany and one part of Germany, two clubs on the weekends. The weeks will be a little bit more dead. But if you're flying all the way over there, you might as well make as much money as you can. And we met a lot of people. and We, we made it work. I think that was going on for about three, four years. Where we just kind of go, you know, twice a year to Germany and just kind of, you know, knock it out and have fun doing it and still work on new music at the time. When and why did you decide to leave the group? Um... It was about 2007, and uh, it was one of those situations where I think people um, just just musically, I think we were just drifting in different directions, and I knew that uh, Garfield was interested in finishing school at that point. Um, I also knew that musically I, I knew he was going in the direction 
that necessarily wasn't really for a group, but maybe more so for a solo project or, you know, different things that he wanted to do. And just because of that, we had kind of never done it before as well. So we were older and it was, it was just time. It was time. I didn't have a family at the time and I was thinking about it. And if I didn't do it, then I wasn't sure when I was going to do it. And I had never had the time to kind of sit back and analyze things that were happening um, in my life. Um, you know, my dad had passed away while I was in college. And from the time that Shy had taken off, I never really had time to really even, you know, deal with grief from that or deal with, you know, health aspects of what I need to do with that. So there, there are a lot of things going on. And at that point, I just felt like it was the best time for me to make that clean break and not to be, not to be, uh, it wasn't towards anybody or anything. It was just the best thing for me. Um, and at that point, that, that's what I decided I, I wanted to do. And even over time, I think one of the first things I did after that was reconnect with Carl and he was going through some things. But I think years later, we reconnected because his dad passed away. And um, from that point, I was like, you know what? Um, Life happens that, you know, it comes at you real fast. So there's no need for me to uh, not reach out to him a little bit and just check on him, that kind of thing. So to this day, you know, we're, we're still cool. Um, I'm cool with everybody. It's just, you know, life is just, it takes you on a different journey. And right now I'm more focused on family than, than most other aspects of, of what's going on. Cool, cool. Did you ever consider trying a solo career? Uh, I thought about certain things. I think what I really want to do is I'm interested in creating a project that can showcase all of the, all of the things that I've learned as far as being in LA 27 years. Uh, I'm looking for a project that can kind of showcase that, um, from the writing and the production to TV stuff, film stuff. I've learned a lot of stuff over time. So if I could find a project that meshes all of that and makes sense, I think that's what I want to do um, next. I, I haven't stopped writing, of course. It's not one of those things where you just kind of let go. But as far as going to the studio and, and actually putting pen to paper, as far as doing a lot of things to to work on a solo project, I wouldn't say that. But do I have the makings of a solo project? Absolutely. Um, it's just a matter of making it work and not just putting it out to put it out uh, and say that I did it. I want it to be meaningful and reach a, a pretty huge audience if I can. So, you know, which everybody will tell you at 50 some years, it's going to be hard to do, but you know, Hey, you know, you, all, you, all you can do is focus on the music that you create and let it be what it is. I know I, I, uh, uh, I heard a project the other day. Sean Stockman put out a project, and I was listening to his record. Really good project, too, by the way. You know? yeah. And I was just and, and I was just amazed by you know everything he's put together and all of the growth that he's done over the years. And I've seen him do a lot of shows, and I've seen him in person, and I know his wife pretty well. And uh, I'm just really happy to see people still putting on projects that they want to do to make sure people know they exist in music. And that's that's exactly kind of the direction that I want to go at this point. So that, that's what I look forward to. 
and uh, hopefully soon that I, I can put all the pieces in place to make it make sense. In 2016, Bruno Mars sampled the group's hit, Baby, I'm Yours, for Straight Up and Down. What was your reaction when he reached out to you? Um, I wouldn't say that he reached out to me. I would say that a producer friend, a songwriter, actually told me that it was on his record. <laughs> and I had no idea that he had actually sampled or did an interpolation of the song, but I was very happy because I didn't know, you know, I just never put it in my head that Bruno was listening to our music. I, I just never put it together like that. I mean, everybody listens to music, but it's different when they listen to songs that you created and that it means so much to them that they're going to listen to it and put their spin on that version. So I was I, extremely touched. And uh, I, I mean, I hope one day I could sit in the studio and kind of pick his brain because that, that guy is a bad, he's a bad cat. He does all the instruments and plays and sings, and, and he's a bad dude and one of the one of the best performers I've seen in a long time. And uh, he just yeah, put it all together. We, and, we haven't seen that again? best yet. We haven't even. Seen, uh, we I haven't don't think seen. so. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he yeah. he he got a lot left in the tank, and the, the influences that he pulls from and. I actually play a lot of his songs for my son, and my son is four, and he's listening to music now, and he loves the melodies, and he listens to everything. He sings a little bit, so who knows what's going to happen. But he actually takes drum lessons from uh, Gordon, Gordon Campbell, who I told you reintroduced me to my wife. And, um, yeah. and Bruno, I play those Bruno songs for him, and he, man, it's like going to town. So my son just loves, loves his melodies. So being a skilled piano player that you are, an inspiring musician approaches you and asks you to recommend one song he should master, what would you recommend? Um, from a piano point of view, I would say if you can learn classical, learn it, get the speed of it. Um, Learn a lot of different things, but that speed is going to help you play almost anything dealing with any type of band situation that could come up. So I've actually played in, in like some backing bands as well. And uh, the things that backing bands always need is somebody who could play two, two keyboards or one keyboard or just play different parts of being able to interpret certain things. And there's nothing like setting yourself apart by playing something that nobody else can play. So if you learn some Chopin, some Mozart, some Cherny, and just be able to incorporate that with whatever currently is going on and be able to embrace that and put it on stage or, or an audition or something like that, it's going to set you apart and put you on a different level than everybody else. Because the competition, I know in L.A., for playing in bands, the competition is fierce. These guys go to institutes. They, they, they virtually probably audition now, and everything is really, really warp speed ahead. So you have to do things to set yourself apart. And um, I wish I had done more when I was younger. I was more resistant to it because I was learning more about songwriting and putting structure together. 
that I didn't have the time as a high school student and athlete to put the time into piano like I wish I had now. But definitely for any musician, uh, yeah, that. And just, you know, anything that's on the radio, learn everything. When I was 16, I was learning everything Jan and Lewis played, everything they put out, anything Prince did, anything Anita Baker did, all of that I could play plus gospel plus this. That's why the time that I got to Howard, I was just playing for fun, and I was still learning gospel music on, on my own. I would go to the practice rooms in the fine arts building, and I would just play just to kind of let loose because my science classes were so intense, I needed to let loose. And so I was still kind of right, but just play piano just to let the steam off and not worry about my grades and, and the sciences because, you know, the sciences are pretty tough. So I, would, I was just one of those, I wanted to learn how to play everything I could get my hands on. And once I learned Jamal Lewis and Prince and all that kind of stuff, I, man, you couldn't tell me I couldn't play because I was just going to take everything they did and apply it to what I wanted to create song-wise. So I was learning these chords. And the, I think the key thing as far as being a musician is what are the things that are going to make other people study you? Like, I get joy when people have to figure out certain chord progressions that I put together I want them to be able to figure it out. I go on videos now and people are trying to figure out together forever. They're trying to figure out Comforter. They're trying to figure out other songs that I played on the piano. And sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come up with new chord progressions that I didn't think about. So that's the, the sharing of music that is an international party that you want to be a part of. And I love being able to go to a stage and teach people how to play certain things. And maybe they don't understand my progression because they're trained a little bit differently. But because of that, you're, you're, you're sharing your knowledge with somebody else. And I think that's really important as we get older that the, the older R&B artists have to share that knowledge with the younger, younger generations and not just, the, hey, when we did music, you can't just do the old man stuff. That, that, that doesn't work. I didn't want to hear it when I was young, so I don't want to hear it when, you know, I don't want to do that at this point, you know, when, when I'm a little bit older. But I do want to share musical skills with them and show them, and I'm sure they can show me, because that's stuff I see. I'm like, wow, that's amazing, and I see what they're doing with their, with their software now and their, the, the way they're doing music and putting it all together. Uh, oh, I don't know if Garfield told you, but his, his uh, twin the sons, they've been producing since they're about three years old, and I've seen them progress and progress and progress, and these guys are bona fide, big-time producers now. They've done stuff with Post Malone, and, and just to watch that whole process and be their uncle musically, like that whole process is what music is all about. That, that right there for me, and I watch them just play beats and do beats, and these guys are phenomenal phenomenal musicians how they put their stuff together and I, I that makes me happy as a musician to know that you have that type of influence and they go above and beyond your influence to do something way past what you're doing that's what music is all about and that's I'm, I'm here for that every day do you ever think we'll see a reunion with all the members of Shy? 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's not a question I think I can answer today. I'm not sure if uh, if everybody's ready for that. I'm not sure that's a discussion that can be had. Um, I know for me, I'm dealing with my family, I'm, I'm a little busy in my day to day, so I don't I don't even know how it fits into the picture. So uh, yeah, I I don't know if that works. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no doubt, respect and. <clears throat> I, I know for me as a um, for me as a fan from the outside looking in, you know, what I've learned over the years is when it comes to groups, yeah, it's it's a sad thing that we don't have you know army groups like we used to. You know, when you guys were in your prime in the nineties, there were so many groups, mm-hmm. but it, it gets to a point when you know you're with somebody day in day out for all these years. Eventually, yeah. you know, you just want to yeah. eventually you want to do your own thing. And like, you know, you can't really yeah. knock anybody for doing that because I'd kind of be in the same boat. Like I was when I you know, when I interviewed Garfield and I was talking to Garfield, I'm like, you know, I can't sing worth, you know, a note to save my life. However, <laughs> if I was in, if, if I was in a group though, I'd be sure that I was doing something else. So if we ever decided to split mm-hmm. off do our own thing, you know, I can ensure I can feed my family and I can still eat and be doing something in the industry. Just, you know, just so yeah. I could be there. I mean, that's when I interviewed Stokely from In Condition, Stokely kind, of, Stokely kind of said the same thing. He was like, look, you know, I've been with a group for close to 30 yeah. years, nonstop, never did a solo project, and I just want to do something yeah. different. And, and, be my own. Yeah, and that, that, wasn't, that wasn't Stokely's thing. I think for years they, people have been asking him to do it and asking him to do it. And, you know, it's a, as, a, as a music exec, I think that's a natural inclination for you to see talent in a group and you're asking people to go solo. They don't realize that the gem of working with a band or working with a group, it's a special thing. It's unique. It's your baby. It's your your passion and that harmony when you're on stage together doing that, there's only one particular group that can do that thing. And I, I, I think people just kind of overlook and say, well, you can do it by yourself. You can do this. And they make it sound so easy, but it's a transition in your life that you have to go from doing it one way to doing it a whole complete setup. And uh, I commend Stokely because he's doing some tremendous music. I, I love what he's done over the years. Okay. And uh, we, we definitely have crossed, crossed paths along the way. And, uh, it, man, he's another talented, oh, my God, that guy. <laughs> and uh, actually, our, the drummer that we originally wanted to, to get ended up playing with Mint Condition, Chris Dave. And Chris Dave was the one that was playing with Michelle and Diego Otello, which is how I actually re-met my wife. And uh, Chris Dave has played with uh, Robert Glasper and some other people. Around. So we've known Chris Dave since his Howard days as well. And uh, just, you know, running across the musician path, I mean, you just run into people, you run into talent. And my wife actually went to school with Carrie, I believe, from Mint Condition as well. So the Minnesota path kind of crossed. And uh, it, it's, an, it's an amazing thing when these worlds collide and, end up still doing music and when I go to Minnesota 
I actually meet people who know all the groups and know all the people involved, and people have these stories about Jamma Lewis and Prince, and, and you hear them, and you can see what a fabric they were in the community. And, and it's weird because all of that affected me even though I was in Miami. But now to go to Minnesota and see it in person still affects me musically, and I can see how that environment affected all the Minnesota musicians and how they, uh, and how they play into the public eye now. It's just a phenomenal thing, and, and yeah, I definitely see the transition with Stokely, and he's making it work and doing a lot of stuff. And man, I, I wish him nothing but success. And I know he's going to continue to do great things. But I know he's going to get the next question: When is Make Condition getting back together? That's just a natural thing that people are going to ask because they just love the group, they love the band yeah. situation, they love you know everything they did. And when I saw them. Actually, I saw them open up for Prince on the Welcome to America tour, and they were phenomenal. So how you go from that to something, it's, you know, for the fans, it's mind-boggling. But, you know, it's just one of those things where you, you, you have to keep on growing musically, and sometimes being in a group doesn't allow you to do it in a certain way. And if, you know, if by chance over the years you, you do something or a project comes out where you could do something, that's fine. But, you know, I don't think you can plan it out and say, this is what we want to do. <laughs> I, I don't think it works like that when you get a little bit older. I just think it naturally has to be one of those things that everybody fights to want to do. No, you can't. And you know, a lot of times, again, like, me being a fan from the outside looking in, you know, I always use two groups as examples. Like, you know, when I debate or when I um, – you know, just have a casual conversation like, you know, somebody who's like a, a novice fan, like, look at it from this standpoint. With groups and everything, when everybody's mm-hmm. equally talented, it's just certain stuff, mm-hmm. that you, certain stuff that you can't do as a solo artist that you can do in a group. A prime example is, as talented as Jacksons are, some of, some of Michael Solo's stuff, he, he, he wouldn't be able to do with the Jacksons because he made him yeah. as a solo yeah. artist. Tenfold, yeah, definitely. Some of the Jacksons did with Gamble and Huff. You know, they left Motown. I couldn't see Michael doing that stuff as a solo artist, and it, it it having the same effect because Jackie singing on some of those songs, and Randy coming in helping him sing those songs, it yep. helped, it helped help the song to another level. And Michael being definitely, solo, it wouldn't have same effect. <clears throat> All right, let's talk in Miami. Yeah. You know, we got this one. We got we, we got we got to talk basketball. You told me you're a Heat fan. So. I'm a Heat fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was I there for the parade last and all that. Yeah, LeBron was there. And, yep. People didn't like me too much during that that Big Three era. I, I swear, it, it was tough. <laughs> yeah, I just started watching the Heat until until LeBron joined. Like basically watching the um, because you know I'm a LeBron fan. So wherever LeBron goes, I'm gonna support. But I gotta ask, mm-hmm. as as a loyal Miami Heat fan, who oh, do you boy. think is the most underrated player in the franchise history? A player that never got there just due. That is a loaded question. And okay, I'm gonna narrow it down to I have four I'm gonna choose from four. But Keith Askin, Grant Long, Sherman Douglas, and Tim Hardaway. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to go with Tim Hardaway 
only because that team was the team that got so close but yet could not get over the hump. And I'm still hurting from the New York Knicks series and, you know, uh, Van Gundy pulling his leg and P.J. Brown and all. That that whole phase, and Tim hit some big, big, big shots. Uh, but I just don't think he got his due with how good he was shooting that three. And I saw him play in Golden State before he even got to Miami. Um, I met Chris uh, Weber, you know, when he was a rookie, and Chris was able to go watch Chris play as a rookie. And uh, and Tim back then, I mean, hey, I mean, they, these guys, they just ball up. And so by the time he got to Miami, I was like, oh, my God, we got Tim Hardaway. He's going to play and Thunder Dan and PJ and Morning. And, oh, man, you just knew they were going to get to the finals. They just never could get there. But Tim had a sweet dribble. He had a shot. Um, man, he, he just was an all-time baller. And it's amazing to see his son play in the NBA now. He plays for the Dallas Mavericks. And you could definitely see the influence that his son had from his dad and his dad prepped him really well to play in the pros and he, he's going to stick. He's definitely going to stick. And uh, yeah, Tim was probably one of my favorite players to watch and since I played point guard in, in high school as well. I mean, that, that's just one of those things where, you know, I'm partial to the point guard. Yeah. What about um, Shane Battier and Alonzo Mourning? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Morning has a—he uh, <laughs> has a school named after him in Miami, so that, that tells you right there, like the type of imprint that he's done. And it's funny because his paths crossed at Howard because he would be on campus um, when he went to Georgetown. He would come over to Howard and we would see him, and he would go back over and all that kind of stuff. So when he ended up in Miami um, after the trade from Charlotte, man, he he just dominated. And actually, he's the person that if he's not in the lineup with Dwayne Wade for the 2006 series, we don't beat the Mavs in four straight after they took a 2-0 lead. So Morning is that guy. Shane Batty is the support person for the 2013 team. Him and Mike Miller, if those guys don't space out the, the offense the way they do to, to hit that new offense that the Warriors have perfected over time, Miami did it a little bit first. We were a little slower, a little clunkier. But the Warriors have the speed and the precision to do a little bit better. That's why they get more credit for it. But, yeah, those, those guys, I mean, basketball is it's a whole different thing now than when we were playing in the 80s. And, and looking at it in the 90s, it's a whole different thing. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, I mean, that, that, that Miami thing was, um, like, the first year, the first year when they went, when LeBron joined, they – they should have – well, nah, it, it, was, it was Dallas' time. But, I mean, it's – Yeah, like, don't go there. <laughs> I went out, I think. I went out in L.A., and I made the mistake of going out to watch the games in public, and Laker fans were became Maverick fans. And I'm the lone Miami fan in, in the doggone bar, and – all that kind of stuff. And I, I you know, I, I don't really keep to myself and I'm in the bars and I talk a little bit. And it was tough. It was so tough to watch that whole series. And you know what? That loss helped groom the rest of the way because I don't think they win versus Oklahoma City and San Antonio if they, if they win that first one. I think they would have taken it for granted. And they taught them how to work harder and how to be the 
team leader that Dwayne became and how he had to knew how he knew he had to let LeBron kind of lead the team differently than somebody had to take a role for this and take a role for that. That team doesn't transition without that loss. So as much as it hurt back then to lose, and I did not come out of the house for probably like a month after that loss. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it had to happen, though. Because I remember um, I, was actually, I was actually out of the country when, um, when they lost, and so, like, it was, I was in Aruba, and, you know, I was like, ah, they lost. So I, I came back, and then, you know, you're watching everything. And when the season started on Christmas, you know, when they played Dallas the next year on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. the way they shut mm-hmm. Dallas down, I was like, oh, yeah. Miami's on a mission. Yeah. The boys is on a mission. Yeah, you already, yeah, you already knew at that point. They're like, okay, we're not going to, you know, mess around anymore. But we figured it out, and we're trying to make it work. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a great thing to see. And, like, you know, like I always tell folks, you know, me being in a um, – I still, you know, go – because my mom's – I mean, I'm in D.C. and my mom's a season ticket holder. So when it actually was games, you know, I, I was so glad to see um, Wade play. But um, for LeBron, you know, I was never mad when he left the second time. And as much as, as, much as he gets hated on, I mean, like, LeBron has nothing, LeBron has nothing left to prove. That man got Cleveland the championship. You can just, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Wrap it out until you know. It's time to it's, it's weird because I worked on a project in uh, Ohio um, while he was still in Miami, and I took a trip to Akron just to kind of see. I had been there before, but I hadn't been there as LeBron's hometown. So I went. I actually got my hair cut there because the place where I was didn't really have any barbers. So I went to Akron to get it done, and. uh I realized by taking that trip and going all over Ohio on that trip, I realized how important he was needed in Ohio. So when he left, I was upset, but I understood. And I knew the economy could only do well with him being there. And, of course, he had the Nike deal that kind of sweetened the pot for the whole thing, too. So, okay, I get it. That that makes it easier to, to make it go make it work. But... Miami, I don't know if it was home for him. It was a place where it was kind of like college for him, where he could kind of be away and his family could grow and that kind of thing, but it wasn't home. And Dwayne Wade was the guy. No matter what anything happens in Miami, Dwayne Wade is the city. And I'm not sure if... LeBron got his just doing Miami like that, but I don't know if that's easy to deal with knowing that Dwayne is that guy. He had all the kids, all the teenagers. He had all that, but the older people who had been with Dwayne who had won the championship in 2006, they weren't switching for LeBron. Yeah. They, that Wade was their guy, and I, and I understand that totally. So I think it was easier for him to leave knowing that that would be the case. And uh, I'm not sure with the Pat Riley thing at the end and and how he dealt with all that and the contract situation. All of that has played itself out over time. But, uh, and, you know, it, it is what it is. But I think it played out pretty much like, like it needed to. And Dwayne coming back home, I think, that, you know, that closed that chapter with everybody, you know, leaving a good taste as opposed to, you know, him going to Chicago and then Cleveland. And, you know, I, I never watched any of those games, so. I don't know what he looked like in the uniform with the other teams because that, 
it wasn't real to me at that point. I was like, no, I can't really watch that. So, you know, I never watched that. <laughs> All right. So before we close out, is there anything you want to mm-hmm. add or any businesses you want to shout out, products maybe working on? Um, the uh not really projects I'm working on. I want to say thank you to all of the fans for their love and appreciation over the years. Um, just last week, a fan sent me CD covers for me to sign and send back. And it was just a reminder of the little things that you can do to kind of make somebody's day. Um, the little things that you can just, you know, it doesn't take much. Um, but just caring about other people's well-being and, and just doing little things. And, and, and I appreciate it so much when somebody takes the time to even just, you know, hit me up and say, hey, Mark, I was thinking about this song, and, you know, you really helped me over time. And, I mean, those things mean, mean a lot to me. It, it makes everything that happened in my musical career, it makes it worth it to me. And um, I received letters from fans describing how songs affect their lives, and all that stuff means a lot. I, it, it, you'd be surprised that, all around the world, it's, it, it never stops. If I would fall in love, is that is that song, and it, it just it won't stop. Teenagers hit me up; it it just won't stop. Hey, you know, Mr. Bright taught me that. It just just doesn't stop. Just doesn't stop. High schoolers, elementary school kids, singing it, uh, prom date, um, song invitations, you know. All that kind of, anything you could think of, there, there's a shot on there that people are actually using and singing. That, that's really touching to me, and I, I, I just don't take that for granted. Uh, so if anybody wants to hit me on that, Facebook under my name, M-A-R-C, last name G-A-Y, and on Instagram, um, M-A-R-C underscore G-A-Y. So just hit me up, let me know what's going on, and yeah, I'll talk to you. If you want to ask me about chord progressions or anything musically, I'm open to it. I'm down. I'm like, yeah, make it happen. Cool, cool. Well, once again, I want to thank Mr. Mark Gay, formerly of Shy, for taking the time out to speak with me. As I always do, I learn a little something, and like I told Mr. Gay earlier, hearing this brother's testimony and hearing his his story to me is the equivalent of sports fans hearing Jordan talk about his prime with the Bulls. So I highly, highly, highly urge you guys to check out some of Shy's later work because these brothers are much more than their signature song. In my opinion, Blackface is one of the best albums to come out in 1995. So check that out on Spotify, iTunes, whatever streaming platform you use. As always, thank you all for listening. And to quote Maurice White of the legendary Earthman and Fire, keep your head to the sky. Done out.